Our 11th After Dark is coming up, and to celebrate, we're getting the original crew back together. Join myself, Lee Glyptus, Simon Taylor, Jason Bates, and Sarah Kachansky as we talk about the biggest things happening in FinServe. Fittingly enough, it's going to be happening on March 11th at the Yard in London. So grab your tickets at, it's a bit.ly link, so it's bit.ly forward slash F-I-A-D-11. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash F-I-A-D-11. And we will look forward to seeing you there. Okay, let's get on with the show. From 11FS, I'm Sam Mall, and this is FinTech Insider News. This week we bring you JP Morgan sets data deadline for fintechs. Marcus proves popular in a new poll. And celebs invest in immigrant credit company. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 403 of Fintech Insider. I mean, good God, David, 403? Was that an English accent you throw in there? That was that caught me off guard, mate. Was that Cockney? That was the Red Bull. Was that? <laughs> <laughs> I was drinking it, got to me. All right, well, so I'll say it again. Welcome to episode 403. I am Sam Mall. I'm in the UK, this office, for one week only. And today, I'm joined by my colleague and co-host with a different beard style today. We'll have a pick of that, David Brer. How are you, David? Really good. Really, really, really busy week. I mean, it feels like it's sort of flown by in about two seconds, but I've got my dog in the office all week this week. So I've had him like as like the nice like sort of stress reliever, which has been good. So, uh, but other than that, it's been a fun one. And Jake, uh, Jake uh, is a beautiful dog. Everybody. He's very cute, isn't he? How have you found the UK? Um, I've really enjoyed it. It's my first time in our new office. It's really not that new anymore. And it feels like we grew up. Yeah. It really does. Weird, it's, right? It's very nice. Well, as always, we're not alone. We're joined by some awesome guests. Making her FinTech Insider News debut, we have Joanne Duar, CEO of Global Processing Services. How are you? Very good. Delighted to be here. We're very happy to have you here. And making our return visits, we have the one, the only, my favorite, Valentina Christensen, Director of Growth and Comms at Oak North. How are you, Val? I'm very good, thanks. I'm so happy. That you're here. You're never <laughs> here when I'm here. And I'm even more happy to have Carl Hazley, the VP of content at Finomize. Hey, Carl. Hey, how's it going? Is that the normal beard style you have? It is. I thought we'd match haircuts, David. <laughs> yeah, Dave, yes, yes. We have a lot of bald <laughs> going on in the office today. Mine's more in the back of the head. All right. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us with that. Let's get started. All right. Our first story, JP Morgan. The largest bank in the U.S., J.P. Morgan gives fintechs data access deadline. This is a story from Reuters. Fintechs must sign data access agreements before July 30th if they want to get customer data from the bank. You have to love Jamie Dimon. Companies must also present a concrete plan, and I did that in quotation signals, to move away from using customer passwords. The policy will effectively halt the use of screen Scraping. A J.P. Morgan spokesman told Reuters that the bank already has deals in place for more than 95% of data access requests. The bank's hopes to make FinTech's Connect accounts through its own APIs, which it says will help secure and protect customers' data. Companies that sign the agreement wouldn't need to abandon screen scraping right away. Instead, they'll have to provide a transition plan and show they're making progress toward that goal. All right. So among major U.S. banks, what's the attitude toward open banking? I love this. I'm the American in the room, and I'm asking the table. Hey, David. (laughs) I mean, it's an interesting one, right? I mean, you kind of feel like if open banking was a thing there, this wouldn't be something that one bank is taking a stand to sort of do to a certain degree. Because essentially, I mean, mean, creating a standard, if J.P. Morgan on its own creating a standard and adhering to the APIs and all the services and everything that they want to put out, just seems like pretty sort of dangerous territory for me. So, I mean, I'd say the regulator probably should be playing a bigger part in this. But, I mean, Sam... You're the American in the group. What do you think? Oh, we we love regulators in the U.S. Um, I mean, the reality in the U.S. If you're going to wait on the federal government and U.S. regulators to come up with something that, that screen scraping. When was any, this? Will be a question for anybody. When was Yodely founded? Anybody know in the U.S. biggest aggregator? I looked it up today. 1998. 1998. This stuff has been around forever and a day. It's not new. It's hilarious that it took the until 2020 
for JP to Morgan to really come in and make a stance, but this isn't the first time. I mean, the article says fintechs have been skeptical, arguing that it should be up to consumers, not banks, to decide what companies can look at, like what information. So to your point, David, but I think at the end of the day, consumers often don't realize the extent of information that they're sharing. Um, so perhaps enforcing some level of control might be a good thing. If you look at the you know, the data breaches last year where you had sort of customer pass- passwords and, and email addresses being sold, it was... The breach is really from British Airways and Hilton. You know, the Experian, you know, it's very, where it's more rare that yeah. it happens with regulated banks, right? Because they're having to invest so much in cybersecurity. It's so high on their agendas. Mm. So in that way, perhaps actually, if someone was going to enforce it in the US, then perhaps a bank doing it is, is probably yeah. a good place to start. I mean, I, I definitely get it. It's it's the conversations that we had with open banking, right? It's like, uh, hey, don't give your username and password away. Oh, you've done it. Something bad has happened. Am I liable or you? And And it's difficult isn't it? Because arguably the customer doesn't really care until there's a problem. So they'll give away any bits of information to like get on Mint or whatever. Um, but it's, I mean, it feels like it's a an industry problem rather than an individual organizational problem, which is probably a better way of saying it than I did a minute ago. Yeah, I think when you're talking about customer data and you think about, you know, the access to that and actually processing information around it, I find this information, I find this very um, uh, opportunistic that we have the CEO of an incredibly large global processing company literally sitting right next to me. I feel like you're about to put her on the spot. Did this you like is, that? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I am literally queuing you up around that question. But, I mean, when, when you look at this, they, that concept of, of, of data, right? Um, I think for the U.S., this whole becomes a huge argument about whose data is it? Is it the consumer? Is it the banks? I mean, really, who owns this? I, th- I think the question for me more is, um, you know, the value of APIs in, in all of this. I mean, uh, what what we've had and, and certainly where we fit in the ecosystem as a, as a processor is that uh, we've been API driven from the outset. And what that has created is enormous value in, in flexibility and control that's being given to the end consumer. Mm. And so anything that, uh, you know, is using the... Um, the relative security of APIs, which which has to, any, anything has to be better than screen scraping, doesn't it? Um, One is, would is really, hope. Yes. Um, you know, is is really driving in the right direction. Mm. So, um, and I, I, because I don't know, because I haven't lived here for a little while, when it comes to the UK banks, and and obviously you guys set the standard that we always look to for open banking. That in the US we will never ever adopt. By the way, let me just go ahead and say that we're, we're rebels by that. But in working with banks and in working with other fintechs, because that's what we're talking about, right? Interoperability, the APIs, how easy is it to almost do this plug and play? Um, is, is, are, is, is the industry overall at, at a, a ease of use level, do you think, Carl? And I'm talking for the UK. I think the evidence suggests we're getting there if we're not already. Um, but I think, I also think that greater collaboration between whatever services are using open banking and large banks themselves is probably only only going to be a good thing for consumers. Um, and maybe the cynic in me thinks JP Morgan is actually playing for M&A opportunities because if you've got, you know, smaller firms who are screen scraping and taking the easy way, you know, which is completely their right, if you force them to increase their costs somehow by having to engage with an API and go through, jump through a bunch of loopholes and phase out their old technology, all of a sudden they need a bit more money. JP Morgan standing there perhaps with a massive wad of cash ready to buy up and take control of some of these fintechs. Um, you've seen Morgan Stanley do it uh, today even, uh, buying a trading platform, uh, another trading platform, I should say. Um, yeah, so maybe it's a- referring to the... Thirteen billion, I think it was thirteen billion dollar all stock acquisition by Morgan Stanley for E Trade. Exactly. Yeah, wow. that seems to be what's happening every day <laughs> in twenty twenty. Is some major announcement about somebody being acquired? I mean, this has been a rather fun year. Yeah, I mean, just going going back to the story, I think it's like we should remember. It's like you, the UK has like we're in a good place right now, but like not all of this was like because we chose to be or, or not because the banks chose to be. You know, like the banks could have exposed APIs for like a decade, but it took consolidated regulation to like make it actually happen, right? So, um I think we I think we sort of look back with quite rose-tinted glasses sometimes at like aren't we great and aren't we smart? But actually 
PSD2 and open banking was like a real hard slog for a long period of time. To, and, and it's still going, right? I yeah. mean, people like a majority of customers or consumers still haven't opted in. They don't really, they're still not really aware of it. Mm. Um, I think we always kind of get into a bit of a fintech bubble thinking that everybody you know, it's excited about open banking as we all are, but, um, you know, you talk to the average Joe in the street and they have no idea what it is. So yeah. that's kind of going to be the biggest thing is that adoption level. That's going to be the determination of whether it's successful or not. So in other words, the market will actually drive where, where this goes. Yeah. I mean, I, I as usual, it's, I, I applaud, I don't have an issue with Jamie Dine, Diamond setting the standard. I've, I've said this a few times in the U S JP Morgan, they, they actually came out in their last earnings statement and said, 50% of U.S. consumers of age have some level of an account with J.P. Morgan. Mm. They're, in, you know, you have that terminology, too big to fail or too big to ignore. Mm. So if somebody's going to help drive a standard and set it from the market, uh, they're probably a good one. All right, with that, let's move on to our next story, talking about <laughs> large banks and being a little bit innovative. A new survey suggests big things for Marcus checking accounts. This is from Forbes. Late last month, Goldman's digital savings arm, Marcus announced it would expand into checking accounts. Now a new survey from Cornerstone Advisors. I like those guys, by the way. Nice shout out to Ron Shevlin and my friend Sam Kilmer over there. Now a new survey from Cornerstone Advisors has found that 8.2% of respondents would open a Marcus checking account. Of those respondents, 60% would use Marcus as an accessory to their current bank accounts. In total, 3.4% of respondents would make Marcus their primary account that would be surpassing numbers from PNC, U.S. Bank, and Truist. Now, every listener in Europe just went, who the hell is PNC and Truist? Probably heard of <laughs> U.S. Bank. So just to give everybody a primer, in the U.S., top four banks are um, Citi, Wells Fargo, Chase, and Bank of America. When it comes to deposits, they have roughly about 45% of the deposits in the U.S. Not bad. Um, then you go to the top 100 banks in the U.S. own 81% of all deposits in the U.S. We're a very uh, interesting market. And then you throw on about another 5,000 banks and 6,000 credit unions finding over 19%. In that mix, PNC, U.S. Bank, and Truist, all top 10 banks. They're massive. Truist is the incredibly cool marketing name for the merger between BB&T and SunTrust, two massive super regionals. All right, so these figures were cited by the legendary Ron Shevlin in his Forbes article, one of the best writers for Forbes in my opinion. Ron argues that if you extrapolate the 3.4% figure under the general public, it would make Marcus the fifth largest bank in the U.S. That's not bad because if I'm not mistaken, the fifth largest bank in the U.S. is Goldman Sachs right now. That's kind of funny. Talk about cannibalizing yourself. The survey also found that 70% of Marcus customers are millennials. They had to get that word into a podcast. While 35% make more than $100,000 per year, half of those will make Marcus as a primary checking account, and they already bank with the challenger Neobank. So I guess the question is, why moving to checking accounts now? How does this fit into the overall strategy? Go ahead, Val. You look, you look primed and like Carl's yeah. like right behind her like, I got to say it. Um, I mean, so I have a Marcus account here in the UK. I was a bit annoyed with them. I got an email yesterday saying that my, my uh, rate's going to be dropping. And just out of curiosity, by hands, how many people in the room have a Marcus account in the UK? Two. Two? And that, Two. Me, yes, one. Yeah, <laughs> and Carl, Carl the other. Val. All right, interesting. Um, so yeah, dropping by 0.05%. And there wasn't sort of much of a rationale. It was just like, oh, rates have been dropping everywhere, so we're just going to you know, put ours down to fine, fair enough. But I think, you know, the rea reality is that, you know, a checking account probably isn't the most lucrative product, but it is one that will enable them to upsell some of the more lucrative products like, you know, their loan offering. I mean, they, I think between 2016, when they launched through to October last year, they lost $1.3 billion. <laughs> um, nice. Yeah. And uh, and developing Apple Card cost $300 million. Um, to Goldman Sachs. So, you know, there's they, they probably do need to find a way now to monetize it. They've obviously been offering, you know, market-leading rates for a long time, and now it's what you do with all those deposits and, and how can you sort of cross out some of those customers. Mm. I think there's even a, a bigger question. If you think about why is Goldman doing this whole retail piece, it's not because they want to be the next Chase or City. They don't even care about being a digital bank or a challenger bank. They don't, they don't really care what we do. It's, it's funding arbitrage, right? Goldman is a pure investment bank, apart from this tiny slither of retail bank. Mm. And how banks fund themselves, investment banks, is by going to the market, paying whatever the, the prevailing rate is. Um, it's higher in a recession because no one wants to lend to banks. It's lower in good times. Whereas, 
if you're JP Morgan, you've got billions and billions of deposits that makes that makes your funding cheaper. Mm. Goldman wants cheaper funding. Whether they lose money on the retail product, it's neither here nor there compared to the savings they'll make on their on their funding business. So why are they doing checking? More deposits. Mm. Uh, more funding arbitrage. They said as much two weeks ago in their investor day. Mm. I mean, I think, I mean, Goldman Sachs have got like one of the biggest balance sheets on the planet, right? So I'm not sure necessarily everything in the savings. I, I, I honestly think like 300 million for, for Apple Card on top of what they've done for Marcus, if you look at what the banks spend on big projects is like nothing. You mm. know, like so, so it's if, if a big tech player wants to work with a big bank and they can spend 300 million to make it them it just it, i honestly think i think goldman sachs are playing just such an amazing game the last 5 years 5 6 years they just keep putting more or almost like maybe it's not they're really smart maybe the fact they're probably got the biggest balance sheet and they can spend money on all these things and then you know it's like you throw enough shit against the wall right something's going to stick so you know they've done a bunch of things and two or three of them have gone amazingly well and now it looks strategic, maybe. All right, to know. my friends at Goldman that listen to this podcast, you're smart. Yeah. We, we do love you. <laughs> I mean, All right. yeah, with like, there's de- I mean, there's smart people everywhere, right? Yes. No, but I mean, if you, if you are 40 bips higher than anybody yeah. else in the market, of course, you're going to see the, the, yeah, the customer like numbers. That. Yeah, people <laughs> um, Exactly. So, but that's why then I guess it's frustrating when they when they drop the rates, uh, you know, even if they're still market leading. I mean, it's... Uh, it's the sort of the bait and switch. Mm. Yeah. But, it, I mean, we've seen Atom do that here, though, right? Atom put out a product, great yeah. rate, acquire a bunch of customers. Now we've got too many customers or we've tested that thing, turn it off, slow trickle away. It's like, I mean, definitely if you try and acquire customers purely on a rate, you're never going to keep them. Yeah. I think, you know, lesson to learn. And I'm curious, Joanne, from your standpoint, right? I mean, a CEO of a successful large organization, when you start looking at, I'm not going to call it product, diversification, but but moving off of your core product a little bit, because this is, I mean, they did it with checking now, or with savings, now moving into checking. I mean, do you see that as being a risky move for them, drifting off of what their actual core is? I think they what they've proven is it's a, 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 it's a sort of a strategic option for them, but they've actually executed extremely well. And, uh, you know, in comparison to a number of the uh, retail banks that uh, certainly over here who have tried to go in or, you know, in the process of trying to go into digital banks, um, what, what that these guys... That shall not be named. We'll, we'll, we'll leave them alone. We'll be nice. Um, you know, what, what Goldman's have done has, is really invested well and created a proper product that is super credible in the marketplace. And I think what it's proven is, you know, despite, you know, the, there's obviously a huge interest and appetite for challenger banks generally, but to have the challenger bank uh, functionality, but the the reputation of the, the, the you know, the heavyweight bank be, behind it is a really powerful combination. Oh my God, Joanne, you're going to love this next story then, because this is the best segue that you unintentionally did. <laughs> we aren't naming any banks. RBS to rebrand itself and bring Bo under new leadership. You wrote these notes so well, Laura. It's a great segue. So this is an article in AltFi. Recently, the banking giant RBS announced it will adopt its NatWest brand across all branches, phasing out the name RBS for our U.S. listeners, Royal Bank of Scotland. According to the bank, 80% of its customers already use NatWest, will also cut investment arm in half after it posted a 121 million pound loss last year. RBS also announced that, oh my God. M- Marique Flament. Thank you. That's probably right. Knowing, knowing David, that probably is really wrong. However, Marique, I said that right? Yep. Who oversees the bank's metal platform will take over as the new CEO of Bo. In total, the bank made... $3.1 billion in profit last year, doubling figures from 2018. Marika also takes over for former Bo CEO Mark oh God, Bailey. Bailey. Yeah. I, I was going to read that one. I thought I had that one good. <laughs> he left RBS last month. The digital bank recently had to reissue 6,000 customer cards due to an authentication issue. Now, what's interesting for me, the reason I actually moved to UK back, I think it was 2004, 2005, was I worked for TSIS. Go figure. Way back in the day. And we were launching the commercial and consumer card for RBS back in the day. And if I remember right, RBS was a smaller bank that bought the bigger bank with NetWest. And at the time I was working with them, they were the fifth largest bank in the world by asset size. Mm. 
Times change. Yeah. Mm. What did you do, Sam? What happened? I moved back to the U.S. That's when it all went to hell. <laughs> it's what it was. I mean, look, there's a lot of stuff wrapped up in one story here, right? The yes. the bow kind of thing. I mean, Mark Bailey's left. It does seem strange. It's like, hey, you're running one bank, maybe just run two. So maybe there's more to this that possibly they're going to consolidate platforms potentially. Um, I think the, the RBS uh, sort of getting rid of RBS thing – Sort of just makes sense, if I'm honest with you. Like, I mean, I, I used to work at Lloyd's Banking Group, and actually customers had no context that Lloyd's, Halifax, and Bank of Scotland are the same company. Like, people would give them completely different NPS scores, but it would be exactly the same stuff. Um, and the RBS brand, the newspapers have just rinsed for the last 10 years. So now the NatWest one carries a much better chance of actually being successful in this day and age. So I'm... It just sort of makes sense, really. Um, and this is going to be a test to see how good my memory is. But if I remember right, when I lived over here around 2006 or seven, was it First Direct was the name of the bank that was always rated at the highest NPS yeah. scores? And HSBC had the lowest, and they were owned by HSBC? They, that- yeah, they, I mean, they weren't just owned by it. It was exactly the same product, just painted black with a, you know, Yorkshire call center, basically. You know? I feel so good about myself right now that I remembered that. Yeah. I just kind of well eked up. Just comes back, back to you, doesn't it? Sorry, Val, yeah. 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 yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as you say, I mean, 80% of the group's revenue, 80% of the customers are from, are sort of coming from NatWest, so it makes sense that then that should be the sort of the group level, uh, the brand at the group level reflects that. And as you say, I mean, they probably just want to draw a line under the under the sand, you know, the past. Um, they've now kind of moved back into profitability. So looking, looking ahead to the sort of new strategy, I mean, this kind of rebrand is part of, I guess, a whole new vision for the bank, mm. um, at least what they've said, you know, in terms of being much more sort of socially minded as a as a business and trying to do you know what's right by their shareholders by communities by the environment so yeah i think a, mm. a new brand hopefully it's a, a sort of a fresh start and as you say doesn't carry all the sort of negative connotations um you know that rbs had also coincidentally actually their cmo their chief marketing officer is retiring um, and he's been you know their cmo for the last five years so again perhaps with the sort of new brand mm. change of strategy and then, um, you know, someone new coming in to, to take over the role, uh, you know, as, as the marketing chief, um, you know, will be, it all kind of is quite a good uh, good mm. time. Yeah, that was announced last week as well, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, David Weldon stepped yeah. back after, yeah, six, oh, he's at Barclays before. and 35 years he's yeah. been in marketing, yeah. So it, amazing. But it's, I mean, it shows the difference, a new CEO coming in, making quite bold decisions to sort of shake stuff up a little bit. It's probably for the best, really. Yeah, I mean, it's, and, uh, sorry, I'm... I'm just excited to see that I'll be uh, that the Bow Project uh, is is getting the support from Alison as as CEO. I mean, it, it got quite a prominent mention within the uh, the annual report, mm. um, and it could you know it could easily have gone a different way given uh, that Mark Bailey was leaving. But actually, seeing it un- coming under um, Marika, Metal and Bow would run as completely separate. Uh, digital uh, propositions. Mm. Uh, obviously, they, they, you know, one's consumer, one's uh, SME. But in terms of, they were two completely different teams working with two completely different sets of partners, almost sort of trying two different models as to how to create a new digital brand. Um, and you know, it really makes sense to now sort of take the lessons learnt from from both and. Um, you know, really, really drive, turn this into what what uh, what's happened with Marcus. Actually, get some heavyweight investment behind it now, yeah. and really drive it forward. Okay. Yeah, I know. And within Eleven FS, we're huge fans of Allison Rose. I mean, it's uh, we were incredibly excited to hear the news. Um, I can tell you from a U.S. standpoint, also we found it incredibly um, uh, interesting news because in the U.S., I'm really trying to think of a woman CEO of a top. 50 bank. I'm struggling. That's pretty pathetic. I cannot off the top. I know there's one. I think there's one. Mm. Yeah. Diversity is incredible <laughs> when it comes to the U.S. Yeah. and ownership like this. What do you think? I'm, I'm, Carl, I'm, I'm, the one thing that strikes me is the timing, though, of the announcement. I mean, you read when, – when I look at the story and they're like, the bank made 3.1 billion pounds in profit doubling – the numbers from 2018, I'd be like popping champagne and high-fiving myself. And then we go, oh, and by the way, we're going to dump the brand name and move back to this. It seems a little kludgy. Yeah, I think, call me cynical, but I'm always very skeptical of rebrands. I will um, call you cynical from here on out. They I mean. often 
they, they often work on the consumer side in that we, for, we forget quickly and we move on and we think NatWest is great and we forget about RBS and it's assigned to the elephant graveyard. But the company stays the same and they repeat the same mistakes. And even when you have new management, you tend to have a lot of inertia below them. And so things just don't get through. Sure. So I think, you know, RBS, by all accounts, had a, had a good 2019. 2020 is going to be tough for all banks um, for a handful of reasons. And I think this gives them the covering fire for another year, yeah. right? If this year doesn't work out, they say, oh, we had a bunch of change. We're implementing things. Think of the five-year plan. If things go well, the new guys come in. You know, they've kicked mm. ass and taken names. Yeah. So, I, I think. Sorry, I, th- I I think it was just a great sort of manifestation from Alison to say, right, this is my bank now, and and you know, I'm making changes. Here's one. It's it's not that radical a change because obviously the NatWest name's already there, but it's just enough to say, do you know what? This is this is mine now. And, and it's like, it's not a rebrand for the sake of it, right? I mean, no, I think you. It's a clarification. Ske- yeah, I'd be skeptical if it was like we're doing a name change because we want to get like a fresh headline or something. But it does seem like there's just there's actually so much change from top down. You know, with two new brands obviously tackling retail and, and SME, you've got new CEO, you've got, well, Alison, then you've got Marie, Mariki, Marika. Marika. <laughs> Marik. Oh, good. Thank you. I love you, Val, for saying that. <laughs> um, you know, and then you've got, you know, moving now into, moving back into the black. Um, so it just seems like actually, you know, this is a, it's a good time and it's a, as I say, kind of quite a nice um, opportunity to draw the line in the sand and, and look ahead to the future. And there's legacy value to the NetWest brand that they're yeah. moving to. Like in the U.S., when BB&T and SunTrust uh, merged, they went with a name called Truist. Yeah. Truist, everybody. Truist, which means something. The right. most true? Yes. All right, David, I'm going to give you the last word <laughs> since you are my CEO. I mean, the only, the only person who isn't happy about this is anybody who's Scottish. So, Chad West. <laughs> yeah, Chad gave me like hella, okay. hella noise on Twitter for this one because it was like, yeah, go tell anybody in Edinburgh or Glasgow that, you know, because it's, I mean, it's sad because, I mean, there's a lot of people in Scotland who have been very negatively affected by the crisis because you probably worked at RBS and the share price tumbled in such a crazy way and you were hoping that pride in the brand would be established. Um, and now that's not going to happen because they've essentially abandoned it and gone to NatWest. That's, that's, going to be tough for a lot of people who already think that London rules the world and blah, blah, you know. It's true, because when you land at the, when I landed at the airport in Edinburgh, I remember as you drove from the airport into the city, you passed that massive sign for Royal Bank of Scotland, yeah. Scotland RBS and the yeah. overpass. All right. And with that, folks, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back shortly. This podcast is brought to you by Stake, the digital brokerage app bringing you unrivaled access to the U.S. market. You can invest in over 3,500 U.S. stocks and ETFs, including game-changing companies like Google, Amazon, and Tesla. Trading is instant, it's direct, and it's commission-free. And with a fully digitized sign-up, you'll be in the market in minutes. So visit hellostake.com or search Stake Trade to seize the U.S. market's $31 trillion worth of opportunity today. Hey everyone, Simon here. You may remember me from such podcasts as this one. Uh, we at 11FS get asked an awful lot, how do you build a challenger bank? Funnily enough, uh, we've gone and written a report. Um, the report is called How to Build a Bank, and it takes you through uh, a different way of doing it, we think. Uh, a way in which you can start small, dream big. Uh, you can think about how do you go and find that product market fit? How do you find that tiny, small proposition that customers are going to absolutely love? What customer job needs to be done? What tech needs to be put underneath it? Who are the vendors and platforms that you need to support? And how do you actually scale one of these things? Uh, that's available now. Uh, at bit.ly forward slash how to build a bank. Okay, back to the news. Our next story, Lending Club. Lending Club acquires a bank to secure a charter. This is from Reuters. The peer-to-peer lender Lending Club paid $185 million to buy Radius Bank, a Boston-based community-turned-digital bank. This is the first time a U.S. fintech firm has bought an actual bank. The deal still requires FDIC approval, which will take about... 12 to 15 months. If approved, Lending Club will be able to offer checking accounts on top of its consumer lending franchise. The news comes a week after Viral Money announced the FDIC had approved its application for a banking charter. Lending Club shares have fallen 88% over the past five years due to a number of issues that we won't go into. 
you can read. Uh, Radius Bank has gone all in on digital over the past five years, offering banking as a service to companies such as Brex. So, and, and Radius Bank, by the way, I think they were founded, like, if I remember right, about 1987. And about five years ago, believe it or not, I was talking to the new CEO who came in to make this decision, shut them down to one branch and go all in on digital and the strategy. Good for them, honestly. Um, so I'm curious, and Val, I'm going to throw to you because – Correct me if I'm wrong. Oak North does have a presence in New, in New York City. Yep, remember yep. it. Good. So do you think more fintech companies in the U.S. will try to get charters through M&A rather than taking the borrow money approach? So I think if they can afford it, then maybe. Um, I mean, there's the sort of there's the borrow money approach, right, which was $100 million and took them, I think, three years. 104.4. Okay, yes. there you go. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> a little bit of change. Uh, and then you've obviously got, uh, you know, the, the lending club approach and, and acquiring radius. And then you've got the sort of Monzo approach, I guess, which is probably sort of more temporary rather than long term, which is partnering with a U.S. bank and, and sort of leveraging their charter that way. Um, as you said, I mean, yeah, you know, Oaknoff has a presence there, but unlike these guys, you know, and Monzos, et cetera, we're not trying to sort of obtain licenses around the world and scale that way. Rather, you know, we're, we're licensing our platform just because, you know, yes, okay, fine, you get the charter. People kind of think, oh, great, then that makes us a bank in that in that market. Well, you've got to replicate the CEO, the exco, the sales function, the customer services team. You know, if you, you have to get, have everything which comes with having, um, you know, a charter or a license. And that means all the sort of corporate governance and all the regulation regulatory tick box that you have to do to go alongside it. I think Revolut now have like four or five CEOs around the world for every place where they're trying to, to get a license. So, you know, that can create a lot of, a lot of uh, can be quite challenging. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you, I think probably some might take the, this approach, but I guess it's a toss up. You could go acquire and do it for $185 million and do it quite quickly. I mean, in quotation marks or take three years and do it for a hundred million like Vero did. Hmm. Yeah. I think I've, what I find interesting with Vero is, um, in their instance, again, you do have what we would, I guess we would call a challenger bank in, in, in the U S doing this, but their CEO is a 20 year banker. I mean, he, he came out of the industry. And as a matter of fact, to remember right, in 2018, they actually withdrew their application because some of the feedback from the FDIC and OCC was you needed more senior leadership hmm. within your organization, more people with bank skills. So, I mean, I guess the, the long story in this or the short, the short story in this is experience does matter a little bit when you're doing something like this yeah. and applying for a job. Yeah, and, and actually, I mean, the U.S. market, I think, is very specific. I mean, I, uh, I worked with the CEO of Vero when he was at Lloyd's Banking Group. He was not like a fintech guy, yeah. you know, like he was a banking guy. And that's what you need, I think, if you're trying to convince the the regulator that actually you're not mm. a crazy bunch of people and doing crazy things, you know. I mean, story that stands out, like this stands out to me, it's like you know, the, all of the sort of talk has been like, when will the big banks buy the fintechs? And now, like, the fintechs have started buying the banks. Yeah. Like, that's really exciting. Do you yeah. think that's just a, a funding play again, though? Because if... Call you cynical? I'm, I'm always cynical. It's, it's a dark <laughs> We've day learned that today. But uh, if, if... Someone's got to do it, dude. Like, no, just... Yeah. <laughs> but uh, most banking services, unless you have a... a create a new banking line yeah. business or you have some sort of operational advantage, it's a cost of capital business, sure. right? It's commoditized. So the only wiggle room you can create for yourself is on funding. And if you're permanently disadvantaged, and, lend and Lending Club had its own issues over and above that, yeah. you know, yeah, M&A is mean, one way to close that gap and to get competitive again. Completely. But it's, uh, it's, it's sort of fintech growing up, right? The mm -hmm. fact that they can actually start making these types of moves to actually buy big, you know, spend this amount of money and buy... Uh, buy a license rather than earn a license. You know, like it's it is an interesting point in the journey, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I find it I find it really interesting for me. We've gone to this new year into 2020 with you know acquisition news or like Visa and Plaid, mm. right? And now we have borrow money getting this license, but now Lending Club doing this acquisition, um, E Trade, right? Yep. Going to Morgan Stanley, and it's been nonstop. Where last year started with in the U.S. the news of BB&T and SunTrust to super regional banks, which, by the way, I think were like six and seven in asset size. This wasn't small. These were massive banks. It was them. It was news such as FIS, right, and, and Fiserv and WorldPay and TSIS, all these service providers where the M&A was happening this year. We're going, and it seems to be all around fintech and these acquisitions. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, and it's, it's good timing. It gives them a source of low-cost, stable funding. will make them more resilient. You know, we're, we're sort of 
as we've said a few times, sort of at the, at the end of the cycle, we don't know whereabouts exactly, but if there is a downturn, this will certainly, you know, give them a bit, a bit more of a buffer. And you've seen in the UK, is it Zopa, you know, another kind of similar business in a similar in a similar sector, getting a banking license last year. Um, so I just think it's, yeah, as you say, it's kind of their way of growing up, accessing a, a more stable and lower cost uh, source of funding. So are we saying then that overall fintech, we're moving into a, a new period, if you will? Because I think if you talked about, if you put fintech into different ages, right, it was we're <laughs> revolute, right? Banks suck. I think, wasn't that a quote or something like that? Pretty we much. all are horrible and we're going to replace you. Um, and then it was, we can all be partners, you know, when you went to the conferences, all that. And now it looks, I'm getting more and more mature mm. is what it seems to be. Yeah, I mean, look, any any new challenger coming into the market has to be disruptive. Else, like, why are you there? If you if you turn up and go, if Revolut turned up and went, banking's fine, like, here's another one. That doesn't get you any attention. Does That's some great marketing. I like that. <laughs> I mean, good. I've never worked in marketing, but I'm get like, Val, well, that wouldn't work, would it, right? <laughs> Probably um, But, I mean, is the, is the interesting thing on this, though, is, like, is this the – is this – moving into a period where community banks turn into just very cheap ways of getting into banking well, in America. Well, that's what we've seen a lot of opinions on, right? I mean, you've heard a lot of noise around community banks and like banking as a service and offering them. So in the U.S., you've got what would be considered smaller banks like Sutton, Lincoln Savings, uh, Bancorp, mm-hmm. Cross River that kind of dove into banking as a service and provided these to the different fintech companies and stuff. So obviously, we've seen more and more interest around this topic. It's a very hot topic this year is the concept of that. So again, I'll just go back to Radius Bank and good on them, right? A five-year strategy and it looks like they executed it pretty well. I think that um, what it feels like to me is when a fintech buys a bank to get the banking license, it feels like it's cheating in in the way that you can buy a degree versus earning the degree through the three or four years of hard graft. Um, And, you know, why that's important to reflect on is if you're buying the bank that's complete with all of that governance framework and everything in place, then fair dues. Maybe that is how one way in which fintechs and banks will properly partner together going forwards. Mm. Yeah, if, it's, if it's just buying the bit of paper that's, yeah. the, that's the license and you haven't got the rest of that framework in the place, it's really dangerous. The only thing I would add around that is Lending Club is 15 years old. You know, I mean, are, are they fintech? They're fifteen years old, you know. I, I mean, I mean, I'd still say they were fintech. I mean, I'd, I mean, uh, we're going to get into like a. I know what we're in taxonomy. Do we have the hour set aside for this? <laughs> or, um, but but I think it's. I mean, it is a really interesting point. It's like buying into a thing, but it's actually quite smart. If you if you really if you want um, back in the good old days when like bank grade meant a thing. Because it's not just the license; it's like a it's like a compliance team mm-hmm. who know how to stay within the regulatory, you know, framework, right? Like that's probably a good idea, you know. Like there's because there's fintechs in the US who like forget to talk to the regulator, right? You know, these things are sensible to have. You know? Well, and that's the thing. I guess it goes back to the point about what Monzo, Revolut, N26, New Bank, all these guys are doing, trying to get the license, but then they have to build all of those mm. com- those functions from scratch, right? The compliance audit. Xcos, etc. Whereas if you just buy the license with the bank, then you get all of those things and all that corporate governance and all those structures. And a bank that's done it for several yeah. years, you know, you've already got all that in place, which hopefully makes it slightly easier. Yeah, just I, for a, a funny fact, um, and curious, anyone at the table knows, you can fact check me after. How long did it take Goldman when they applied for a national charter to get it approved in two thousand and eight? One day. Moving on to the next story. <laughs> HSBC. One freaking day. HSBC to one cut. One day. One day. It was wow. mid-crisis. It was so they're just tending the mouth. <laughs> they were, yeah. uh, and sent, just so you know, uh, something like 12,000 bank charters granted in the U.S. from 2000 to 2008. 2009, I think 23, basically 40 bank charters granted in the U.S. from 2009 to 2018. Hmm. So – um, a round of applause for Varro Money for actually yeah. <laughs> making it through this. All right. On another story concerning banks, HSBC to cut 35,000 jobs over the next three years. Story from the Financial Times. The company will downsize its American and European investment banks. The goal is to reduce annual costs by $4.5 billion and get rid of $100 billion in assets by 2022. Noel Quinn, the bank's interim CEO, said it would favor natural attrition over laying off staff outright. The effort will cost HSBC $6 billion in restructuring costs and $1.2 billion in disposals. The news resulted in a 6% dip in the bank's share price. 
more money, more problems. It's like Simon is here <laughs> for that one. I, Damn. That, I, I'm like, I can help them get rid of $100 billion in assets was the thing that stood out to me on that one. I was like, what What are you doing with the? But, but this is, I mean, I, I, I think I said this week before this came out, thankfully. So like Twitter's great because it can evidence all sorts of stuff that you say that's smart, but also a bunch of stuff that I've said that's terrible. But I'm like, until you genuinely start seeing banks massively cut jobs and then do proper cultural transformation programs, they're not really changing anything. Um, so this is probably just very sensible, pent-up, uh, artificially keeping a bunch of jobs going for such a long period of time where they're like, now we really have to rationalize and really have to restructure because our op cost is just killing us. Yeah, so so it makes a lot of sense. I'm going to actually go to our resident cynic on this one. Carl, <laughs> I'm actually, you need a jingle for that. No, I'm actually optimistic on this one because this oh, is... This, oh my is, this, whole story, this, this whole story is a microcosm of everything going on in the industry right now, right? So in October, HSBC announced 10,000 cuts. It's now 35,000. So it's either 25,000 extra cuts or depending on your politics, it's 35,000 new cuts. Yeah. Um, and Depending on your politics. I like that. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like, it was necessary. The CEO in August got fired for not firing people. So it had to happen. And where they're cutting is Europe, America. They're keeping Asia. They're growing in Asia still. And that's where they make 90% of their profits. So you kind of wonder what they've been doing here anyway. Um, and... It, it frees, it, well, look, rates are low. They're not making as, mu as much money from loans, et cetera. It frees them up to do a few other things. The 100 million of assets, most of that's coming from France. They're going to sell the French retail bank and slim down, hopefully. Um, it also opens the door for M&A, which is another, you know, we've just been talking about in that, you know, we've had Italian banks consolidate just this week um, to become like the seventh biggest in Europe. Uh, you're seeing that in the asset management space in the UK and in the US. It's like people have been talking about banks sort of rationalizing since since I was in banking. Um, and so, yeah, for ages. And it's finally starting to happen and people are finally making those hard decisions. Um, and it's, it, it's maybe unfortunate HSBC blinked first, but someone had to blink. Yeah, great. And I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's also just part of the sort of the the move towards becoming more digitally led, right? I mean, that, that's the whole point. You're supposed to be creating those efficiencies. If you look at big tech companies, I mean, so even with this cut, HSBC will still have 200,000 people globally. Apple has 132,000 people. Google has 119,000 people. Alibaba has 102,000 people. So literally half the workforce of HSBC. Um, and obviously, you know, profits that are that are off the charts. And these are, these are companies with valuations of, you know, a trillion. Um, so I think that that's kind of as well, you just have to kind of see how much more output you can get from fewer people mm. because of the fact that you've got technology to kind of help there. Um, the thing that stood out for me was the fact that this this effort will cost HSBC six billion in restructuring costs. That's two Oak Norths, just in restructuring costs. I mean, some management consultancy somewhere is putting together some beautiful PowerPoint to make this happen. <laughs> I have There's put together a new an RFP OD. that you wouldn't believe that's going out before I leave here. Joanne, I mean, we talked about this earlier when we were talking about RBS and, and Allison Rose, right? And going in and making the hard decision because mm -hmm. that's the job of the CEO, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you look and view this? Well, it's clearly uh, a big cut at rationalization and, and cutting back. But uh, are they within that going to do enough on transformation? Because, you know, is that going to result in something then in three years' time, not not even five years' time, in three years' time, are they going to be looking again and needing to do the cuts and things again? Or are they actually going to, you know, bite harder, think properly about the transformation? Because I still believe that a lot of these uh, big guys, you know, I don't know about HSB specifically, but I think the big guys generally, so many of them, think they're doing transformation, but actually they're not. You've brought back the cynic. I agree with you. I think <laughs> the Carl, very fact, the, you, you were good house. for a second. No, no more jingle but, for you. But the very fact that they're saying, look, we're going to make all these cuts. We've re we realize we've got stuff wrong. Oh, but in Asia, it's fine. We're going to keep growing that. They haven't. They're not, they're not reorganizing sort of bottom up. They're just yeah. like, all right, let's cut some people in Europe. Sure. We're not growing there. I mean, I mean, the brand, HSBC's brand in Asia, I mean, in Hong Kong, you basically are issued at birth a HSBC card. <laughs> like it's like it's that sort of um, in the, the the ecosystem. But they've always played a sort of a funny role. I mean, HSBC have always, I think, have always thought themselves to be very, very different from every other bank. 
because they're you know they're in 76 different countries at a time and they're they're so big that they're not really like anybody else but i think to your point now we've got organizations that dwarf them from a revenue perspective but are minuscule in comparison from a size perspective is is just sort of showing them that they really need to change their ways i mean it it's sort of probably the, the dawn of uh, if a massive bank like HSBC has to do this, then every bank needs to start doing it. Because yeah, if op cost is the killer, then everybody has to fix it, right? Yeah, and I think it's interesting because this is another great segue into the next story because we're going from HSBC, we're talking old school, massive bank, right, across basically every geo. And now we're going to talk about these challenger banks in Europe and in the UK. So Monzo, Starling, and Moniz, they benefit from N266. Oh, good Lord. N26XX? Sorry, Nicholas. <laughs> it's, it's like we had an echo effect on it. There. Yeah, okay. I was doing so well. And then, you know, that yogurt I ate earlier just crap. <laughs> Monzo, Starling, and Moni's benefit from N26's exit. See how I accentuated there. Another article coming up from AltFi. The three challenger banks saw a rise in transfers and customers after their Berlin-based rival N26 said it would leave the U.K., Market payments into Monzo accounts from N26 shot up 250%. The day of the announcement, Moni saw a similar 200% boost. Starling, meanwhile, reported an increase but couldn't say for sure whether it was related to the N26 news. Revolut didn't respond to Altby's request for comment, but Oak North would love to make a comment because Val's hand went up. Literally the second I started talking about this. Hey, Val, how are you doing? Hi, thanks. You're um, welcome. Yeah, no, so so Chad from Revolut actually did tweet after saying, you know, I hate everything about this story. But then he sort of went on to explain that it was, you know, they talk about, oh, you know, they saw payments into Monzo accounts shoot up 250%. But quite rightly, he pointed out, but from what base number, right? I mean, if the base number was 10 people, <laughs> 10 <laughs> payments of war, then, uh, you know, it's not it's not that uh, crazy. So I think that was a very, a kind of a very fair point, um, a very fair point to make. Um, you know, and the, and the other thing is, obviously, people using N26 are likely to have at least one other challenge bank account. Um, so, you know, it's natural that any balance that would be an N26 would be transferred to another challenger bank. Um, I think, you know, you guys covered it on, on last week's show. It was sort of uh, an interesting... A convenient excuse. Mm. Yeah, as the American in the room, if I read this right, it was something around Brexit, right? Due to Correct. Brexit, we are that that thing that nobody knew about. It came as a huge surprise to everybody. So I can see why it caught them off guard. Yeah, I mean, they said it was that, but I don't think it was. Right? It's highly likely it was just lots and lots of competition in this geo. And I mean, they're advertising so heavily in New York. They're Man, doing so much everywhere you, else. Exactly. They are advertising massively yeah. in New York City right now. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, there is, uh, you know, there's good coverage of uh, the, the challenger banks in the UK market in particular. Um, and N26 weren't particularly offering anything any different. Mm. Um, I mean, we see a lot of the, the next generation of challenger banks coming through. So those that are going to be challenging the challengers in the in the weeks and months to come, uh, I think the key to to their success is providing something that's over and above, something different. We're seeing mm. sort of things that are, are mashed with other functionalities, or uh, you know, the addition of a crypto offering. So we've got um, Syncs going live uh, right now. We've got Igloo coming up soon, which are you know products that are going to be. Uh, Challenging in a different way and offering something different. N twenty six was just uh, just another one. I mean, it was it was uh, has been more game changing on continental Europe mm. because I uh, you know they were there ahead of ahead of the others. So yeah, and from a skeptic's point of view, Carl. I mean, so come on, give us a just go there. Positivity. Oh, no, come on. Okay, well, so, no, I'm, so, I'm so this was clearly positive for the or it's probably positive for the likes of Monzo, Revolut, etc. But if you think bigger picture, a year, two years down the road. I think this is bad for everyone, all the challenges, because if I'm a big established bank, my argument for years has been, you can leave your money here with the exception of Northern Rock. We're all going to be here tomorrow. Yeah. I'm not going anywhere. I can cut 35,000 people. Nothing's going to change for you. I'll be here every single day. And the challenger bank response is, well, we're just new. We have, of course, we're not going anywhere. We're growing like the clappers. Yeah. You haven't, we haven't been around long enough to leave. Mm. Well, one of them's just blinked. One of them's just gone. And... When, yeah, sure, you move your money straight into your Monzo account, but then you sit there and you think, wait a minute, that bank that was here yesterday literally just disappeared. I'm going back to Barclays or wherever it is, right? It actually, I think, strengthens uh, the big guys long term, including from a hiring perspective. So you go to Monzo, put it on your CV because you're cool and trendy. But for a career, you don't know that 
the startup, the, the challenger banks are going to be there anymore. Yeah, you know, I find it interesting from a U.S. perspective when I talk about the challenger banks in the U.K. You know, ever who I, you know, who I never call a challenger bank. Marcus Oak North. <laughs> hey Val. Thanks. You're welcome. Um, you sound like you're a dial-in. <laughs> <laughs> hey, How this is Sam. First from... time. Listening. No, honestly, I don't. No, and I, you know, and I think, I mean, we don't really want to be known as a as a challenger bank. To be to be totally honest, I think though the. The, this just shows the, the exactly to your point the need to have a an offering that is so differentiated and is not just incrementally better but is 10x better, right? I mean, even the fact that Monzo Monies and potentially Starling saw a similar similar boost um, after N26 left shows that people kind of couldn't really differentiate and just couldn't really decide which one to go to. So they all saw a, a similar level of uptick. When I think back to following the Brexit vote, so back in June 2016. At the time, Oak North's loan book was ninety-eight million pounds. We'd launched in, you know, about uh, eight months earlier. By the end of that year, it had tripled to a hundred, you know, to to three hundred million. And that wasn't because we were taking undue risk or because we were suddenly, you know, everyone knew about us. It was because the other banks pulled back because of the vote, and as a result, that gave us an opportunity to gain probably more market share for a, a limited period of time than we otherwise would have done. Wait, so you guys? benefited from Brexit. <laughs> in the short term, oh, at least. Wow. But I mean, you know, but that was, yeah, that was definitely kind of a, a silver lining for us. But I think that just shows then that that's an example where there was, you know, if you have an offering that is hopefully yeah. dramatically different and you from can the be market. there. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, which is, is you know, this is, that's, I guess, quite different to this. I think the the thing that I found interesting on, on um, so Revolut didn't comment on this, but did you see Revolut did comment on Monzo this week. Did you, yes. did you yes. see this on Twitter? Yeah. So um, Monzo put out a thing saying, hey, tell us the top feature you'd want us to improve. And Revolut's account tweeted at them saying an immediate switching process to, to Revolut. And I was like, I I love the, whoever runs their social. Sometimes, like every so often they hit on just like an absolute gem. And like, I just, it makes me chuckle. Yeah, like, but then actually, there, was actually, wow. there was a hilarious article in, uh, where was it? Um, fintech global talking about the backlash that actually then it, it kind of it spun off this whole kind of Twitter argument where people were like, yeah, as if I would switch to Revolut, and they like were linking to the Wired article from last year and all this Two stuff. Tries, right? right? Yeah, there was, oh, yeah. You got to be careful when you make a joke. Yeah. You got to like log out quickly, go away. Yeah. But what I was going to come back to was with N26. Do we know what their customer base was in the UK? They've been very uh, un. Uh, helpful. They're, they're definitely not telling us that because, specific because number. Because going back to sort of the original question as to, you know, whether the, the other banks are, had actually benefited, um, I can share this stat because um, Richard Davis has uh, been on stage uh, sharing it. So we, we're currently creating 40,000 cards a day for Revolut at the moment. Wow. So I'm not sure, you know, that they'd necessarily see the spike even, mm. e- even when a lot of people are moving across to them. Equally, <laughs> didn't even make a blip at that stage. You know, even uh, I mean, Starling Bank uh, announced their latest uh, funding uh, last week, mm. didn't they? So again, they would have had benefits from that as well. So being able to isolate mm. uh, which increase was to do with with what is not. I think it's easy. interesting because it ties back to one of our earlier stories about controlling the messaging, right? When we talked about RBS and the move to NatWest when they had their profit and then mm-hmm. announcement, and the same here, right? Mm-hmm. It, I do find that you know the role of a CMO is very important. There, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, it actually is. Like, Are you about we, to ask Val for a comment again? Like, <laughs> no, I was about, well, no, I was going to say this. I'll throw this out, and then because of time, we've got to move on. But it it gets back to, in my opinion, to the importance of that brand, right? At Eleven FS, God knows we love our brand, right, and we embrace it. But the same with every single one of you, right? I mean, there is the importance of protecting that brand and its reputation and and how you engage with your customers. All right. So on that last story, and finally. Nova Credit brings celebs into fintech, as if celebs have never got into fintech before. But the story from FinExtra, the startup Nova Credit aims to help U.S. immigrants gain access to credit. It shares credit histories from 11 supported countries with American banks, lenders, and telcos. Notably, Nova has attracted investment from celebrities including actor Ashton Kutcher, U2 guitarist The Edge, and baseball player Alex Rodriguez, or as better known, the husband of... J-Lo. Now oh. everybody goes, oh, that ah, Alex. That uh, yeah, yeah. A-Rod. Okay. The company brought all of these celebs in when it completed a 50 million Series B round. Did you bring celebs in with Oak North when you were doing your – just curious? Mm, not that I'm aware of. Yeah. Does Philip David? Hammond count? <laughs> Do we have any celebrities? Uh, not, that, not that I can talk about, no. Okay. 
So interesting. The new funding round is expected to expand Nova's international reach. From a skeptic's point of view, Carl? I mean, so Nova's meant to help immigrants with access to credit, right? Yes. I think from a skeptic's point of view, good luck. Making immigrants' lives easier isn't high on the U.S.'s US government's priority list at the moment. That's so Um, true. And so I think celebrity was like that star power might actually help them get the job done if Kim Kardashian can get people out of jail like, somehow. So Wait, Kim Kardashian got somebody out of jail? She actually did. She went to go and sit yeah. with uh, the president and yeah. people President came out Trump of jail. did actually sign something that was of value. And well, believe because, it or not, because this is Sam Kim Kardashian told him to? No, well, she actually, uh, believe it or not, yeah, that would be a whole other podcast. But yes, Kim Kardashian and a group got together and got some excellent executive decision made. I now have to go take a shower. <laughs> why why do you two – do you guys know about this as well? It's no, a very American okay. story. No, it is. And, and I, I normally know what's happening with the Kardashians. Yeah. Actually, so. no, yes, this, that, that this, actually did happen. This, so to your point though, Carl, yes. That stop – that's – Yeah. Get people behind a thing. Yeah. Right? yeah. I mean it's like when a celebrity complains about, I don't know, their phone bill, it gets sorted. When I complain, it gets doubled. So it's that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, maybe it works. The concept of a celebrity in fintech or tech in general in Silicon Valley is not new. I mean, Ashton Kutcher has an incredibly long history of investments, both successful and maybe not so much. I know that um, we think with our friends at Klarna, with Snoop Dogg, please come on our show, Snoop. We really would like to get you here. <laughs> Venus Williams with Elevis. You got Leonardo DiCaprio with Aspiration, another challenge we're making in the U.S. Um, Nas with Coinbase. He can definitely. That would um, be good. On the show. And obviously, Will I Am Atom, right? And Will I Am, yeah. But, but and, and before that, even, there was um, Alex Ferguson, oh, as, on, as in from Man U, was uh, invested in Pocket in 2016. Seriously? So, I did not know that. Yeah. Sir Alex wow. was. Yeah. I did. What does Sir Alex, Nas, and Snoop Dogg have in common? <laughs> Fintech. Fintech, baby. <laughs> so, so, but, I mean, because like Will I Am sits on the board, right? So is Aston Kutcher, The Edge, and A Rod going to be like in the board meeting? I know, I know that Aston Kutcher. There, there's actually uh, another podcast. They do exist with what? Recode with Kara Swisher oh. talking to Aston Kutcher about his investment and his strategy, and it's shockingly good. Yeah. At and at, at, he is. I'll, I'll give him outside I mean, of WeWork. I'm sorry, WeWork. I'm not going to slam it too much. And the disastrous interview he did around that. I think overall he's done pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I think you know the. Uh, if you look at some of the, I mean, as you say, it's not, it's not, they're probably taking credit for the fact that they brought celebs into, into fintech. But as we've seen, it's, it's something that lots of others have done. And it's beneficial for the, you know, to be associated with a brand like this that, as you say, is trying to help immigrants get easier access to credit. That's probably going to be pretty good for, for their kind of brand as well. So there's a kind of mutually beneficial thing there. The same with, you know, Venus Williams and, and Al Vest. Again, it's a, a fintech with a clear mission and a, a strong social purpose. You know, Klarna and, and Coinbase, you know, probably less so. But again, and then there's obviously a, a financial, um, you know, driver there as well. Mm. So there's, I guess, yeah, a, a difference with Will I Am is that he's a, an advisor mm. and then obviously getting getting um, shares, whereas these guys are just coming in as investors and probably not having the level of uh, of equity that would, you know, enable them to get a, a yeah. board seat. Yeah, well, full disclosure, one of the co-founders of Nova Credit, Nikki, is actually a friend. Um, I... I like these guys. I really do. And it, and it, it actually is. And Carl, you brought this up on the, the cynic side of it, but I would agree with you. Um, the the social and political atmosphere in the U.S. right now concerning immigrants, right, and concerning this, and I could say the same for the U.K. folks, um, this is a time when things like this really do need to stand up a little bit, right? We talk about fintech doing good and helping people, democratizing access um, you know, to to financial services. So, you know, you want to see companies like this succeed and do well. If it takes, you know, celebrity backing to help do that, I don't have an issue. And David, damn it, get us a celebrity. I don't understand what's taking so long. I mean, if your friend works at Nova Credit, get us Aston Kutcher on the podcast. The second the story came out, if you go look on Twitter, I went, yo, Nikki. <laughs> <laughs> that is actually a very true story. All right, folks, we're out of time. Um, I want to thank everybody for being here and joining us. And we really want to thank our guests. What we'd like to do is give you a chance to get a shout-out, uh, talk about you, best place for folks to find out about you and for your company. So, Val, I'm going to go to you first. Sure. Uh, thanks. Um, so, Valentina Christensen, you can find me on LinkedIn and Val Christensen on Twitter. And if you want to find out more about Oak North, it's oaknorth.com. All right. Our resident skeptic, Carl. I am the Carl on all socials and Finimize on all socials as well, the world's largest community of retail investors. Are you seriously the Carl? 
the underscore Carl. Can he be our celebrity? Nice. Sure. <laughs> we need a celebrity skeptic. Obviously, Joanne. Joanne, you uh, I'm at Global Processing Services. Uh, so, uh, globalprocessingservices.com or Joanne, you on LinkedIn. The one and only David Brewer. Uh, find me on LinkedIn. He's, he's writing some incredibly good stuff on LinkedIn lately. I'm proud of you. Thanks. It's, it's, I've, been, I've enjoyed it. Sentence, like long sentences. Yes. Like sometimes punctuation. And words that are more like than four letters. I know, right? It's really easy using the thesaurus, everybody. As for me, what'd you think of today's show? Let us know on all our social platforms. Just search Fintech Insider or email podcast at 11fs.com. Snoop Dogg, Nas, hit me up or the Carl, and then he'll, he'll reference you back over to you. Everybody, thanks for listening. See you next time.